I try not to use my kids in a sermon illustration too frequently, but something happened this week that was too cute for me to ignore. <laughs> we had um, we were getting ready for Thanksgiving, and you know we're, we're we're going to a big family thing afterwards, so we're trying to get them all fancied up. And one of the girls comes out, you know, all dressed and ready to go, but her hair is a mess. <laughs> And, um, you know, my wife very wisely talks to her and says, like, "Ah, you know, are you sure you put conditioner in your hair? And uh, she uh, my daughter said, of course, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And my wife will very wisely and much more learned looked at her and said, I know what it looks like when you put conditioner in your hair. That's not it. And that, that, that just ministered to my heart. You know, it's, uh, there are just some things where you can tell when something is missing. <laughs> where a particular effect is not there. If you use a particular hair product, you can expect a certain effect. Or so I'm told. <laughs> I mean, clearly you see how much effort I put into my hair every morning. So, <laughs> so there you go. I confess to know nothing about hair products. But I do know Jesus, and I know that having him in your life will absolutely have an effect on you. Having him in your life will change you. I have enough faith to believe that if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ from the heart, if you have the Holy Spirit living within you, it will have an effect on you. You can have the God of the universe living inside you and nothing change. I have too much faith in him to believe that. It's not hard to see when you look at others, but it can be hard to admit sometimes when that absence of life is there, especially in your own heart. You know, much like the fig tree that we're going to cover in today's text, you know, when we first, uh, when Ashley and I first moved into our house, we planted a whole bunch of pine trees. And uh, they, they lasted for a couple of years, but one of them didn't make it. One of them didn't make it. Uh, last, it, it lasted a few years, but last year it just turned orange and it never came back. Some of you maybe understand what we went through there. But the problem was, you know, it was orange for a while. We just didn't want to admit to ourselves that the fight was over. So we, 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 we let it go probably for way too long until it was obvious to us and probably our neighbors that it was time to take, away, take it down. We threw in the towel. The same is true of dead religion. The same is true. It's often dead for a while before people have the courage and honesty to admit it. But the signs are there if you know where to look. And with that, we have our passage before us where Jesus, having been coronated, coming into the city, uh, riding in on the donkey, coronated as the king of Israel, coming in and cleansing the temple, And as they return to Jerusalem the next day, we see the following take place in verse 18. That in the morning, he was returning to the city. He became hungry. Does that surprise you to read that? That Jesus was hungry? The God of all the universe was hungry? Does that fit with your theology? Does that fit your mind of who Jesus is? Because remember, Jesus was not some kind of superman. Something beyond us, wholly not us. Or was he just like us? 
Because in reality, that's who he was. Jesus was. We, as Christians throughout the ages, have affirmed Jesus was 100% man, just like us. There, in his humanity, he got hungry and he ate. He got tired in his humanity and he slept just like the rest of us. Now, granted, in his deity, the God of all, the everlasting God, neither faints nor grows weary, Isaiah 40 tells us. A very, very popular passage. Uh, so in his deity, no, but in his humanity, just like us, he felt what you and I feel. Jesus felt everything. You and I have felt in this lifetime. That's why Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus can sympathize with us, having been tempted with every emotion and physical urge as you and I feel, yet without sin, it goes on to say. And in his physical hunger, Jesus sees a public-facing fig tree in verse 19 as we continue in our text. This, he wasn't, you know, he didn't trespass to go and do this. This was a public fig tree. Where And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Mark chapter 11 gives us a more detailed account of this where he noted that this actually took place over two days. He, one day he cursed the tree, the next day he comes back and it's withered. Matthew's abridging it somewhat. You know, it's not a contradiction, it's a, just a slight abridging of the, um, of the narrative. I mean, keep in mind, for a tree to go from leaf-bearing to completely withered in only a day, that's pretty immediate. If you ask me, my pine tree died a lot slower. It took a lot slower than that. So what's more is that the account in Mark 11 tells us that it was not even the season for figs. Now, Matthew just assumes that because he's writing to a Jewish audience. Them going into Jerusalem every year, they would know. But Mark points it out. It wasn't the season for figs. And I learned this week that figs grow right on the heels of the, uh, the leaves when these trees grow. So if there are leaves... There should be figs like coming up immediately after it. One comes with the other. So before Jesus even curses this tree, something here is wrong. Something here is wrong. It bloomed leaves before the right time. And in doing so, it sprouted the sign of having figs when there were no figs. Perhaps, and you know, the reasons, you know, beats me. You know, there was a, perhaps there was a disease involved or bad soil, bad nutrition, perhaps. I, once again, I'll gladly yield to somebody else's guess. I know about as much about trees as I know about hair. <laughs> In fact, I can't help but, uh, but, but share this. You know, a neighbor a number of years ago asked me to watch some plants for him. Well, he went away for a month on a series of business trips. He wasn't going to be home for a while. He asked me to look after his plants. Yeah, every one of them died. <laughs> Lesson learned. Don't ask me to watch your plants. Or do your hair. But let's get, getting back to the text, let's get the right picture here. Because we miss the point. Because we don't see the imagery. Jesus encounters this tree that has the appearance of being healthy and fruitful, but it was fruitless. It was barren. Good only to disappoint a hungry traveler that was passing by 
to continue in their hunger, having received nothing to help it of what it was promised to be relieved by. Jesus sees this tree and pronounces judgment on it by cursing it. And so it would wither away. Mark, Mark 11 again tells us to the root within only 24 hours. And to make sure that we get the picture correct, it's no coincidence that we find this passage paired in all the Gospels with the cleansing of the temple. As the fig trees are used as a symbol for Israel frequently throughout the scriptures, Jesus shows up to the temple and to the tree, both expecting one thing and finding something completely different, having their expectations disappointed. Jesus then says, you basically uses this tree as an object lesson and curses it, saying, hey, what, what, what Israel has become is just like this tree, having the appearance of godliness, having the appearance of fruit and spirituality, but it's not there. And so forth, he curses it, solidifying that no fruit would come for it again, both from that particular tree or the nation of Israel. As for as 40 years later, some, it was destroyed under, under the direction of Emperor Titus. You can look that up in history. So first and foremost, this is not impulsive or rash of Jesus to do. It was a calculated and masterful object lesson connected to the faithlessness and legalism that Jesus and his disciples had witnessed ever since they came into Jerusalem. Instead of the pure worship that we discussed the last two weeks here, what they found was corrupt. The religion of the people of the time was ritualistic. It was graceless. It was man-centered. It was law-centered. People had clearly loved the law more than the God who gave the law, which often happens in these legalistic circles. This was not the fruit that Jesus should have seen when he assessed his temple or the nation of Israel that this tree represents. And their judgment was not only just destruction, but it says here a lack of fruit, as Israel has never enjoyed the intended spiritual fruit that was intended forever for them to embrace their Messiah and for the nation of Israel to be a light to all the nations of this good news. History records a different story. And rather, as Paul wrote in Romans 11, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. However, that chapter goes on to pronounce a spiritual revival of Israel will also take place, where they will look upon him who they pierced, Zechariah 12.10 tells us, and they will mourn for him as though for an only son, The imagery there is exactly right of what's going to happen someday when they will embrace who they were always intended, always destined to be. Until then, though, of course, we still love them as God's chosen people. God's promises towards Israel are not of of no effect. We talked about that a few weeks ago. I'm not going to re-preach another sermon. We got much to get through today. But until then, we wait patiently and pray for that veil to be lifted. Now, while this passage is, again, you know, all the imagery, this is about Israel, we would be foolish if we didn't see parallels to the modern church today in this passage. 
And we would be foolish to ignore the warning of the fig tree. Because after all, you, th- you think the worship system that God himself set up in the, in the, the Levitical system in, in Leviticus and Exodus, God set that up himself. And it didn't become legalistic and ritualistic overnight. There was a slide into it. And moreover, whatever, you know, as much as I love our flow of worship, as much as I love our way of doing things here at this church, what we've made, our liturgy is man-made, as well thought out as it is. So we all the more so have to be careful, and we need to learn to recognize the signs of barren religion, dead religion, really. And the fruit of barren religion often includes an emphasis on the outward rather than the inward. A focus on outward, dead religion, barren religion is just an overemphasis on good works, going out and doing good things. And yeah, we, we applaud good faith efforts to help other people, but never at the expense of an inward relationship with God. That's where we get the motivation, the encouragement, the power to go out and be salt and light into this world. But it's one at the expense of the other. And again, with this emphasis of the outward as opposed to the inward, you will see an evolving emphasis on very formal and involved rituals. Clergy dressed up in very magnificent vestments. Clearly, that's not the case here. But um, um, repetitive and vain prayers you know, with, where you could just tell in some services and some circles, some of these people have never prayed a prayer from their heart in their life. They're just reading off of a book. They're reading off of somebody else's authentic prayer, perhaps, at best. And as I say that, I'm speaking both to signs that you'll see in the church today and things that Israel had done 2,000 years ago. The vain repetitive prayers that God will hear them for their many words. There's a reason Jesus addressed that same thing on the Sermon on the Mount. It was happening back then. 2,000 years later, have we heard the message? Have we changed the call? And again, the danger of this outward beauty, because there's a beauty in it. There's definitely, you will definitely hear um, beautiful calls to worship and Beautifully thought out prayers where every single word means something. And you know what? That's, it could be a beautiful thing. I used to marvel at some of these preachers that would get up and pray these long, beautiful prayers where every word just seemed to be right. Didn't dawn on me for many years that, oh, wait a minute. You, you took like two hours to plan out every single word of that. You, you, you planned that prayer with a thesaurus, didn't you? And hey, look, that's fine. We ought to present our best to God. We ought, to, we ought to speak from the heart and we ought to put some thought into our things. I got my notes here before us today, but there's a difference between doing it because you want to give God your best and doing it to impress others. That's dangerous. And so much so that we're warned in Matthew 6.1 not to practice our righteousness before men so that we're seen by them. Because those who do so will have no reward in heaven. You get your reward now with, the impre- with people being impressed by, oh, wow, you're such a good speaker. What, what beautiful words that you have. Congratulations, that's your reward. I hope you like it. But that's the danger. When you focus on the outward, 
There's not only no reward later, there's no inward experience with God now. I have to come back to that point, but a, a similar fruit that we see of this outward-focused religion is self-glorification. Couldn't think of a better word, self-glorification. Uh, very similar to the type of prayer that Jesus told of the, uh, the priest that prayed in the temple. Oh, Lord, I thank you that you have not made me like other men. I tithe on this. I do this. I do the other thing. Thank you, God, for not making me like this tax collector. That's self-glorification in a nutshell. Lord, thank you for making me awesome. Thank you for making me not like this guy who's not awesome. Self-glorification. Who's getting the glory? The person. But what did that tax collector say? He just beat his breast and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Which one of those guys went away justified? You know. The one who just simply asked for God's mercy. There's an obvious difference between the two. And to this day, I cannot hear some, someone, that passage without thinking about that climate change hymn that we've been talking about, one of the catalysts to some of the conversations we've been having about this church, where literally in the latter verses, this, this hymn, if you can call it that, congratulates the singers for being the ones who listen to science and work hard for the cause. What's the difference between that and that Pharisee? I'm all ears because I can't tell you the difference. It's the same heart. The same heart that produces one produces the other. Oh, thank you, God, for not making me like these people. You know what the emphasis of a gospel-centered hymn is? The glory of God. Not on what I've done. You guys know the hymns that we have here in our hymnal. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's, that's, what the, that, that's the type of hymns that the gospel produces. That dwelling upon the God of the Bible and his great salvation produces. Perhaps there's no better example than amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch like me. Barren religion can't write a verse like that. That's someone who's spent a lot of time staring deeply into the cross. That's that. That's, a, that's the fruit of true religion right there. And look, I... I could have a field day with this passage. I could spend the next, a whole nother sermon just taking pot shots at other denominations and those who rightfully deserve it. Church, uh, the various other denominations, church movements, and even other Christians. But I'd be no better than that Pharisee if we didn't turn that lens upon ourselves. If we didn't pause for a moment and focus that same lens upon our own hearts. Well, what kind of fruit does our Savior expect from us as individuals? As I mentioned earlier, you, you, you can't have the Holy Spirit inside you and it have zero effect in your heart. I have too much faith in him to believe that. But the Bible does tell us exactly in our first reading the type of fruit we can expect to see in our lives when we are yielded to the Holy Spirit's work. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, 
peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is what Christians should expect to see and see growing in their lives. And the fruit of the flesh we also read earlier. You see, and you can go back and reread our first reading. That's what happens. That's the natural fruit of what happens when you disconnect yourself from God. When you're not abiding in the Spirit, when the Holy Spirit's not working in your life, that's the end result of it as well. But how do we get this fruit of the Spirit in our lives? How do we get that? Because many people think that they're going about it the right way, but they're not. A good friend of mine, dear friend of mine, says that too many of us Christians engage in the art of fruit stapling, he calls it. Fruit stapling. Well, here, here's what he means by this. And this is a rather odd imagery, but you'll get the point. You see, if I have a tree in my front yard that's completely barren, there's nothing on it, but my neighbor has a really nice looking tree, I could say, oh, that's what I want for my tree. So I sneak over to his house, take a couple of the things off of his tree, go over to my tree and literally staple it to my tree. And now I could say, hey, I got a fruit bearing tree in my yard, right? Right? Of course not. And you say to me, John, that's nonsense. What are you talking about? And rightfully so. That, that such a thing is absurd. Nobody would ever say that or do that. Except that we do. We also deceive ourselves when we say, oh, I'm going to become more loving. I'm going to become more patient. I'm going to become all of this. And all I'm doing is just saying I'm going to do it. We're likewise pretending that something happened. We're just taking from what we saw in somebody else and just bringing it over, just pretending that we have it. It didn't grow organically. We didn't produce that. So how do we produce it? Well, the most beautiful example talking about fruit I find in John chapter 15. And some of you might remember this example. I talked about this, you know, way back in 2019, I believe, if I remember correctly. Where Jesus, talking in that passage, says, I am the vine. And you are the branches. The whole point of it is that a branch can't do anything unto itself. It has to be connected to the vine. It can't bear fruit of itself. It doesn't have that power. And you'll notice you'll never see a branch in your yard struggling with all of its might to bear fruit. It it doesn't have that power at all unto itself. It doesn't struggle. It doesn't give itself guilt trips. It doesn't say, oh, okay, I got to do better next time or any of those vain promises we make for ourselves when we want to see fruit in our lives. Rather, all they do is stay attached to the vine. And that fruit comes naturally. It's just what happens when, fr- when branches stay attached to the vine, fruit comes. They have everything they need to produce fruit. Like I said, the, you'll never see a branch giving itself a guilt trip. You'll never see a branch reading a self-help book, a how-to manual, or anything else crazy like that. There are no 12 rules for life for a branch. They just stay attached to the vine And that vine will supply you with everything you need for life and godliness. Everything you need to bear the fruit that God rightfully calls us to have. And that vine for us is simply to be attached to Jesus Christ. To be attached to him. To abide in him. 
And man, if I could have a conversation with every Christian I know and give them one exhortation, this might be it. That it is that simple. The secret to spiritual growth is simply to abide or to remain in, to be attached to Jesus Christ. And that fruit will come. No amount of anything else is going to bring about that result. But if you just stay closely attached to Jesus, it'll come. If you just stay in his word, keep reading it. And when it's easy and when it's hard, you just stay in God's word, it'll come. If you keep, if you make and commit to a time of prayer, a time of worship, if you make time for fellowship, for, for praising God as we do this morning, for um, like to, to, or even to serve God through the various outlets we have here, giving God all of these various opportunities and outlets, that fruit will come. And the person who does so, it will be like David's tree in Psalm chapter one. Very favorite image of mine, where that tree is planted by the river, yielding its fruit faithfully. And how is it able to do so? Because its, its root, its supply is right there in the river. Never runs dry. It has everything it needs. We do too. We do too, church. We just have to abide. Because our, likewise, our supply is constant. We too can be, the the river's right there, church. (laughs) Our roots don't have to wander far. It's only when they wander away from that river. We try to attach ourselves to other things. We find our contentment in other things. We see the beauty of the dead religions and we say, oh, we want that too. And we too partake of its deadness. Only then, when there's something wrong, does that happen. So what describes you? The tree of Psalm chapter one or the withered tree that we're talking about now? Or even better, let's be practical. Which describes you today? Because we all go through seasons where we're not abiding as we ought to. And I know myself, again, just because you stuff me behind a pulpit doesn't mean I'm kind of Superman either. You, You take me out of fellowship. You take me out of the word. You take me out of my prayer and worship time. I'll dry up like a, like a withered tree too. All of us are subject to that. So which one are you today? Are you spiritually malnourished? Or is there evidence of God working in your life? Are you experiencing these fruits? Are you looking at it and saying, John, you know, I'm not what I could be, but I'm not what I used to be. I see fruit in my life and I see movement. I see God working. You talk about the sanctification process and I'm seeing it in my life, John. That's you, God bless you. And if it's not, you know, we have to ask the question, why? And that's a deep question. That's something only you can answer. Because again, we're talking about appearances, right? I can't judge your appearance. As much as I love all of you guys, you know, it's hard to know somebody well enough to be able to make a call this deep. So that's up between you and God. Are you yielding that fruit? Are you attached to the vine? Are you yielding that fruit of the spirit in your life? Do you have this vibrant inner life, a longing to enjoy the things of God? Or are you like so many others where your relationship with God is merely outward, merely the appearance of and beauty of dead religion, of formalities, 
but lacking in substance. But I will say on that note, as I look around, as I'm looking at this church that I know and love, I'm encouraged by what I see here. I see God moving in so many of your lives. I, I, I've seen, just in my short time here, the, the growth that some of you guys have had in just a short period of time. You know, God is doing something here. There's a, there's a desire to gather just like this in worship. There's a desire to continue to meet and do special services like the one we just did at Thanksgiving. A desire to meet those who have needs in their, in their time of need. Several of you guys have been asking me about starting a Bible study, and I love that idea. And who knows what this next year might hold? Pray for me. There's a lot going on right now. But guys, that's evidence of the Spirit. The flesh doesn't desire more things of God. The flesh doesn't desire more church time, more services like this. No, the flesh wants to stay home watching football. The flesh says, oh, I'm too busy. There's so many other things I have to take care of. It's the Spirit of God that says, John, this is where I must be. This is where I want to be. There's nowhere else that I want to be other than here. Let me start here and then whatever else comes, come what may. That's the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And I, I got to say that, again, talking about the health of this church, you know, every time I talk to somebody who comes here for the first time, they always refer to how warm this church is, and I know they're not talking about the thermostat. Talking about how welcomed they feel, how at home that they feel. And that's on you guys. I wish I could meet every single person who walks in the front door, but you guys are the first line of defense. And you always do such a wonderful job, and I'm so encouraged by what you guys do. And frankly, you guys should know, every one of my pastor friends asks about you guys. Every person who's ever filled in for me, they ask about you guys constantly. And they're all asking about when they can come back. And I say, you can't have them. They're mine. <laughs> but all jokes aside, that, that's a good sign when people who are, even do have their involvements and their healthy commitments, they're like, hey, what's going on in South Amboy? When's the next time I can be part of what God's doing there? Because that's not true of every church. You look at the fruit of other churches it doesn't look like the fruit that we see here. You see, it's, it's no surprise to you guys. You guys have eyes to see too. There's fruits of corruption, scandals, greed, all kinds of people being crushed by unhealthy leadership. Other fruits you see are churches dying off because nobody wants to be there. Because nobody wants to be under a more bureaucratic, legalistic system. And that pushes people away. People, churches and movements that have lost track of the inner life, the personal relationship with Jesus Christ that we're called to have. So many lose it. And guys, my prayer, come whatever may, whatever may in this next year, this church remains committed to Jesus Christ that we keep the main thing, the main thing here, that you guys keep abiding in the vine, letting the fruit of the Spirit 
come from your life and change you and do powerful things. Again, not because we're so impressive, but because, again, God is going, if he is within us and he is here and he is part of this congregation, he's going to do something. That's my prayer. May we just continue to be that church that God has called us to be, continuing to grow to be more like him every single day, every single hour, every time we come together, building this church, not just in numbers, but in the depth that we all have as individuals. Thanks be to God.